I think it's been clear to a lot of people for a long time that our global systems are not working right. That capitalism has been too brutal to the people on the bottom. That we seem incapable of collaborating on climate change, even though everyone knows it's coming. And we needed to make some sort of giant change. We needed to see a major planetary change because it wasn't working the way it used to. And COVID-19 brings all these things rapidly into high relief. The problems that were already there, the fact that they are genuinely problems and that we can't keep ignoring them. and welcome to this episode of Imagine Human. I'm your host, Morgan Moncada. On behalf of our team at Imagine Human, I hope that you and your loved ones are safe and healthy. This episode was recorded on Sunday, March 22, 2020, less than one week after stay-at-home orders began sweeping through the United States. The COVID-19 pandemic has changed our lives and our world, with repercussions that will alter our global economies, healthcare systems, and social interactions for years to come. Our guest, Alana Sheikh, is an international health consultant who works with governments across the globe to develop healthcare systems capable of withstanding pandemics such as COVID-19. We discuss how East Asian countries were prepared to slow the spread, why Western countries faltered, and what human factors contributed to this pandemic. Finally, we discuss what we as a society and as individuals can do to protect each other and support systemic change In her widely viewed TED Talk, Coronavirus is Our Future, she urges us that now is the time to prepare for the inevitable pandemics of the future. Hi, Alana. Thank you very much for joining me today on Imagine Human to talk about your work with coronavirus and uh, your background as a global health expert. Uh, For our audience, I was wondering if you could share with us, uh, where are you right now in the world and what are you doing? So I actually live in Colombo, Sri Lanka, and I work as a global health consultant. So I work for a lot of different organizations on a lot of different global health topics. And right now, of course, COVID-19 is like the big global health topic that's happening. So what what are the conditions there? So Sri Lanka has been tracking their outbreak pretty carefully. Um, It is an imported outbreak right now. We're just, actually, I'm not sure I can say this credibly. I do not know if we're seeing community transmission yet, but our Mm -hmm. numbers are going up. Mm -hmm. And the government has actually imposed a curfew on the country. So everybody's been confined to their homes since Friday and it'll be lifted for eight hours on Tuesday and then it'll be back in place indefinitely. It's It's a challenging experience, but I think we know that it will slow the spread And it's sort of an act of support and solidarity to all of our neighbors and everybody in this country to stay inside and do your part. And are you part of the team that helps them develop strategies to deal with this? What does your day-to-day kind of look like? So it's sort of interesting. Um, I'm not working with the government of Sri Lanka. Um, Mm. As a consultant, I have sort of a whole portfolio of different things I do. And none of them actually involved COVID-19. Or currently, now it's now that's shifting, actually, because of the attention I got around the TED Talk that I gave about COVID-19. I'm getting a lot of contacts now from people who want my help. But 
to be honest, I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a health system specialist and I am a planner. So this is not necessarily my moment. It's a strange time to be me. I was talking about this uh, with the other half of my LLC, Jessica, and we were talking about <laughs> the fact that we have the skill set to understand exactly what's happening and to see how it's going to open forward. But we're not epidemiologists and we're not clinicians. This is not necessarily our moment to be on the front line. This is our moment to be thinking about what happens next. How do we make sure that the systems learn from this and come back stronger instead mm -hmm. of getting weak into a breaking point? Right. So essentially, you guys are supposed to prevent this kind of catastrophe. You are the consultants that an organization or a government would hire to plan for something like this. Is that correct? That's correct. Like we're okay. the kind of people that governments were working with after the SARS outbreak to right. identify what do we do next time. And if you look at Southeast Asian governments, if you look at East Asian governments, if you look at Taiwan, you look at Singapore, they did actually learn from SARS and they were ready. And right. so that's kind of a really cool example to me of a health system that got stronger because of a shock instead of weaker. And do you think that gave them, or it sounds like that gave them a, an advantage in dealing with coronavirus? relative to the Western countries? Yeah, because there was no indecisiveness. They recognized what the numbers mm -hmm. meant and they took action. They had these signposts from their previous interaction with SARS and I guess to some degree MERS. And that told them that when they reach a certain threshold, this is when they need to enact certain safeguards. Yes. And to be clear, it's not secret data. Everybody had right. this data. Mm -hmm. They're the ones who acted on it. So how have you seen that kind of play out with Singapore and the East Asian countries in contrast to the United States and the Western countries? What's your perspective on that? It's been so shocking and distressing to see how long it took European governments, North American governments to really understand that this was a problem and they needed to take action. Like it mm -hmm. just you could see it coming. It's like we all just stood there watching it come towards us and wondered if maybe we should do something. It's like we're standing in the middle of train tracks watching the train come thinking maybe we should get off the tracks. I don't know. Is it really coming? Mm -hmm. I mean, pretty much everybody I know in global health has been seething with frustration for weeks. Yeah. And it's interesting. I was just reading about Mexico and how Mexico is, as everyone knows, very underprepared for the imminent number of cases that they're about to deal with. But the justification um, from the global health minister there was that they simply couldn't sustain the economic damage of imposing those precautions earlier. What would you say to a government official who posed that argument to you that, you know, we have to weigh the impact of the economy. This could be crippling for our country. The economic damage is real. The economic damage of lockdowns, of travel restrictions, of quarantines is absolutely real. Mm -hmm. But if you're going to say that, then you need to actually say what you mean. And what you mean is we are willing to let the oldest and most vulnerable members of our society die in order to protect our economy. Right. And you can make that argument, you can build it out into if the economy is weakened, other people will die. We believe this calculation is better for our citizens in the long run. Right. You can make that calculation. You can probably work up an equation. But I think if you're going to talk about the abstract concept of economic damage and the trade-offs you're making, you need to be very honest about the trade-offs you're making. Yeah, and I, even the economic trade-offs um, can be translated in terms of lives as well. So you can begin to 
weigh one versus the other, but n- neither is an ideal scenario. And I feel like the United States right now is juggling with that without telling people, you know, how, exactly how long this will last. What is your perspective on how the U.S. has been reacting? Obviously, later rather than sooner. But do you feel like we're taking enough precaution? Okay, I saw those pictures of spring break in Florida. Um, like, I, 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 I'm out of words. I know I'm on a podcast. I'm supposed to have words, but the, the pictures of spring break in Florida just leave me speechless. I think the governors that have taken decisive action are going to be very, very grateful later, and their states are going to be very grateful that they showed that kind of leadership. Yeah, Governor Cuomo uh, has been quite lauded uh, for his response in New York, shutting everything down, and they have the largest number of cases as of today. I want to take a step back and talk a little bit about the development of coronavirus from your perspective. And I know you're not an epidemiologist, but in your TED Talk, you discussed the human factor that plays into development of these zoonotic diseases, specifically our population growth and our uncanny ability to disturb and move into previously uninhabited areas. So it's not precisely about population growth so much as it's about land use. Like if population was growing but staying in cities and like going denser rather than going wider, the population growth would not necessarily be the issue with regard to zoonotic illnesses. It's an issue for many other reasons. So to talk about zoonotic diseases, you know, they live in animals and they can infect humans. That's the simplest way. That's why they're zoonotic. Some of them can spread human to human and some of them stay in the animals. And the trick is like they keep coming back, right? Like you can't eradicate a zoonotic disease because it has a wild animal reservoir. The example Mm -hmm. I gave in the TED Talk was uh, avian influenza, which every single year infects poultry farms in Europe in particular, but all over the world in Europe, in Asia, because wild bird populations keep bringing it back. And that's just how it's going to be. Mm -hmm. Now, in this case, it's the wild birds that are moving around. However, humans also move around and we claim new land and we go into new spaces. And when we do that, we meet new viruses, we meet new pathogens. So the issue there is that there are absolutely bacteria and viruses we have not encountered yet Mm -hmm. that we will meet as we take over the last spaces we've never really occupied. And what is driving that? Are there particular industries that are responsible for that? I think partially it's industrial level and partially there's a climate change component mm-hmm. as historical like nomadic pastoralists get forced into farming because roaming with their um, there's not enough water anymore to water their herds. So they need to start farming, but there's no land for them because all the land's taken. So they, they take new land, basically. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about climate change and aiding the spread of disease? So climate change is just the spoiler and the game changer that makes everything else worse. Mm. I mean, I talked before about climate change and nomadic pastoralists and in general, like the influx of climate refugees where people have to leave their old places and go to new places. And sometimes the new places mean migration to countries that appear wealthier. And sometimes the new places just mean deeper into whatever land remains that they can access. Mm-hmm. And then climate change is also going to mean water shortages, which affect hygiene, which is going to be rapid spread of diseases. Mm-hmm. Climate change is going to create uh, more space for tropical diseases to spread. Mm-hmm. We're going to have more and more zones that meet the climate criteria for tropical diseases. Mm-hmm. So things like malaria that has historically been in a smaller place are going to be in a bigger place. Mm-hmm. Um, 
one thing that some people like to worry about is like what happens when like the tundra and the permafrost start thawing, like what kind of bacteria are in there that are going to come out. Oh, wow. Yeah, there's, there's a lot to worry about. Like dormant ancient bacteria and viruses. Yes. What do we do if we're going to see an increasing frequency of viruses, bacterial uh, pathogens? Is there any way that we can possibly be equipped for that? So I think we want to do basically take three approaches. Mm. We want to stop making the choices that force people into those spaces. Ideally, we want to stop exposing ourselves to new pathogens. And even if we can't completely stop it, we could reduce the number of exposures by making better choices around wildlife preservation and around support to climate refugees so they're not forced into those spaces. The next thing, which is sort of what I anchored my TED talk around, is about building health systems Mm -hmm. so that every country in the world is ready if there's an outbreak of a new pathogen, so that everybody can identify the disease and can treat it. Mm -hmm. And can report on it so that data is shared and other people can use it. And then finally, we can build up systems in every country to be ready when the outbreak does come. Mm-hmm. So like build up the basics as well as we can in poor countries and then keep building on that everywhere as well as we can. So that would be more in line with what the East Asian countries have sort of enacted over the past couple months. Well, I'm talking more about building the capacity to do that, like mm-hmm. being ready to be able to put that in place. What would that take? Money. Money and political wealth. People have trouble conceptualizing something as abstract as a pandemic. I think because it's both so frightening and so hard to put into concrete terms in your head, and because every time you think about it, it feels like you're thinking about a disaster moving, not about something real. And so there isn't a lot of will among voters or communities to fund this stuff. So there's not a lot of motivation for politicians to do it. And odds are the pandemic isn't going to happen while they're in office, so it gets kicked down the line. Yeah. And there's um, the same with any sort of economic crisis or recession. There's a bias against the past. Once it gets further and further away, you forget the lessons that you should have learned and you forget to invest in the resources to prevent that inevitable cyclical thing from happening again. I'd argue there's also a bias against the future. It's almost like we don't believe in the future and Mm, that we overvalue the present. But at the same time, How would you answer a politician who asks you, how would we afford this? I'd say I'm a public health professional. I drew up the plan at the lowest cost I could think it through. You're the government leader, solve the problem. So essentially, it's more like, okay, I'm the government leader. It's my responsibility to reallocate resources and realize that this is an important enough problem. Yeah, it's my responsibility to convince them to like outline the problem and explain the likelihoods. And it's Mm -hmm. their responsibility to find the money. Like when you keep pushing that sort of making a case and not only that, but finding the budget resources back onto the public health people and the planners, you're basically letting politicians abdicate their own responsibility. And do you think that there's a a significant role uh, for the World Health Organization to play? So the World Health Organization does not have enforcement powers. The World Health Organization is a consensus body made up of member states, and it's real strength is in issuing expert recommendations. Because if you're looking at evidence in health and medicine, like one person's case study is your weakest evidence, a knowledgeable expert is better, a team of experts drawing from double-blinded scientific studies is your best bet. And that's where the World Bank excels. Finding the, sorry, the World Health Organization, finding the best experts, bringing them together, having them find a consensus, issuing the guidelines and the recommendations and giving us gold standard research to work from. 
Right. Like that is what they do, but they can't make anybody follow the guidelines. They have no capacity for that. And they've been issuing recommendations for what health systems ought to look like for something like 30 or 40 years. They have everything you need if you want to know how do I strengthen the health system, what pillars need to be in place. They'll tell you how many doctors you should have. They'll tell you what your staffing ratio should look like. But they don't have any ability to make anyone do it, and they don't have any money to provide the funding for the countries to do it. Mm-hmm. Do you think that we'll move a little bit closer towards either giving a body like that or creating a new body that has some sort of enforcement powers? Do you think that's likely in the future, given the global scale of this, that we're all in this together? Or will it still be individual on a country by country basis? I don't know. It's possible that COVID-19 is actually a game changer in terms of how we think about international politics. Right. But... Someone recently compared COVID-19 to Chernobyl. Chernobyl didn't actually change the core bones of international politics, and I don't know that COVID-19 will either. And mm-hmm. as long as nation states interact the way they do and prioritize national sovereignty the way they do, we're not going to create a transnational health enforcement body. Yeah, hey, that's unfortunate. If it could mean tighter, more uniform regulations across borders. There's a lot of things to think about there around national sovereignty and how much credibility you give this body and where does it draw its power from and who controls it. So it is unfortunate that we don't have a better ability for every country to get the resources they need Mm. and cure and treat patients the way they need to. And it's unfortunate that we're not doing a good job of sharing data. Maybe you could kind of describe how would you design a system for a particular country? Where's the first step? What do you look for? I talked about the three things before, right? Yes. And there's actually, I talk about the three things, but there's a fourth that everybody sort of tunes out when you talk about it. But basically, you need a facility people can access easily. Everybody needs to be able to get to a health facility or some form of health care. They need mm. to be comfortable going in. They need to be able to, if you have a clinic, but everybody knows they're mean or everybody knows they don't treat ethnic minorities or everyone knows that they're uh, horrible to gay people, people aren't going to access the facility. So you need a health facility that's welcome to everyone that people feel comfortable bringing all their weird health issues to. It has to be affordable because if they can't afford it, they're not going in. That's what we're seeing in the States. It needs to be staffed by somebody who's capable of providing an accurate diagnosis and providing a treatment. I know that sounds like a weird difference, but for a long time, for example, in poor countries, they could diagnose HIV, but they couldn't treat it. And there's Mm -hmm. no motivation to go in and get tested if you're not going to get treated. So you need a diagnosis and you need a treatment. And again, they need to be affordable. Mm -hmm. And then you need the capacity to then report those cases up the line to a system that's aggregating them and producing epidemiological data. So that's sort of your very most basic functions of the health system. Sounds very similar to like a supply chain of data that you need to therefore benefit everyone else and then uh, enact further measures elsewhere. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting way of thinking about it, that the ability to provide care to people who are sick is a way to lure them in to get their data, but I'm willing to accept that. Yeah, now that you say it like that, it it sounds a little bit draconian, like we're just getting data from them, but it benefits everyone, right? I mean, I, I feel like the data this time around and just the technology has made this threat so much more real that it's being tracked everywhere. I think the data is being shared more widely in the public. But Mm -hmm. the ability to do this kind of granular epidemiological work isn't new. But I mean, I'm here in Sri Lanka, but I'm from Syracuse, New York. And I can open a live updating tracker that will tell me how many cases are in my home county. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, me too. In, in upstate New York. And that's kind of, that's astonishing. That's not something that I've been able to do before. Right. I was actually looking at a tableau visualization of my home state of Indiana, tracking the cases in Delaware County, which is where I'm from. And both my mother and my brother who are at risk are essentially shelter in place right now there with three months of food supplies, um, trying to hold out through this. But yeah, I've been tracking it every single day. I think the first case was yesterday in Delaware County. It's scary seeing it spread from Indianapolis, which is the capital outwards. And is it, it's scary. And is it actually useful to you? Like sometimes I wonder, is all this data just making everybody more anxious? I think for me, it gives me a sense of preparedness that I'm taking action by at least keeping myself informed and translating that to my parents. And I feel like the data can help you gauge how worried you should be. What is your general feeling regarding the state of fear in the United States? I think fear gets a bad rep. I think that this is a frightening situation. It is 100% appropriate to be afraid. But I don't think that fear makes us incapable of making good decisions or taking appropriate action. And I think there's sort of a good disconnect there where everyone thinks, okay, I can't be afraid because if I'm afraid that I'm going to do the wrong things. Mm -hmm. But I think you can absolutely make the right choices while you're afraid. And I think fear can even be a guide in terms of what you should be doing. So I guess this isn't quite where you thought the answer was going to go. (laughs) But in terms of the state of fear, like, yes, there's people who are being completely crazy, but they're being completely crazy in both directions. I think some people are responding to their fear by taking ridiculous risks to prove they're not afraid. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think some people are responding to their fear by making appropriate choices like sheltering in place, like limiting their social contacts, like doing all the correct things. And I think some people are responding to their fear by like hoarding seven months of toilet paper and leaving other people unable to wipe their butts. I guess along the extreme of no fear would be those college kids party in Miami. Yes. And what would you say to them? What would be your... So clearly they've heard and rejected the altruistic argument, which is Mm -hmm. that they should avoid viral spread to protect others. So what I would say to them is, you know, when we talk about mild COVID-19, we don't mean it's like a bad cold. We mean you don't need to be in the hospital. Like, I have a friend who has, quote unquote, mild COVID-19. I mean, she's constantly struggling to breathe. Her skin looks gray. Mm. Um she is exhausted and has severe brain fog and is just miserable and has been. And this is mild. She doesn't need the hospital. She doesn't need supportive care, but mild means nobody's admitting you for inpatient care. It doesn't mean it's not incredibly unpleasant and it will absolutely be unpleasant for longer than the pleasantness of whatever you did on spring break was. Mm -hmm. So this is more of an argument for their own safety Yeah, because I'm assuming they've seen the other people's safety argument and rejected it. So you have to go to the next level because I think that's what's happening is young people are saying, well, it's mild in young people. It's not going to kill me. What do I care? And the fact is, it really sucks. Yeah. That's why you care. If you don't care about other people, you should care about how unpleasant it's going to be for you. I mean, now we're seeing like gastrointestinal symptoms, like stomach, Mm -hmm. diarrhea, like picture that you're gasping for breath and like trying to struggle to the bathroom. Like that's not pleasant. And it's sad because each of these young individuals has someone in their life 
that could be severely affected by this. Yeah, I mean, maybe they don't. Maybe maybe they don't believe in germ theory. Maybe they don't believe in causation. Maybe American science education failed them a long time ago, and they're not really able to think about risk. Like, I, I tend to tie a lot back to like weaknesses in science education and the fact that we're not good about thinking about stuff like risk, and that we don't really understand the biology of most things anymore. Yeah, and we don't understand what can be done to prevent them. Uh, in your TED talk, you talked about the sanitation of your phone. And you said, please clean your phone. I know that you use that in the bathroom. Yeah, I want to make it clear here because based on some of the replies I got on Twitter, using your phone in the bathroom doesn't increase your risk of COVID-19 any right, more than right. using your phone <laughs> anywhere else. Yeah. You were just conveying a point that it goes with us everywhere and it's unsanitary. And we don't think about whether our hands are dirty or clean when we touch it. Right, exactly. And we put it up to our face. I read a, a great example that said you should think of COVID-19 like glitter. Like think if you've got glitter all over your hands, mm -hmm. how much you'd go through life spreading glitter on everything else. And like you'd get your phone covered in glitter and then you'd put it to your face and then you'd have glitter on your face. And just like it's easier sort of to conceptualize glitter than a virus because we've all had the unfortunate encounter with some form of glitter. Can you talk a little bit about the possibility of this coronavirus becoming an endemic disease that could come back on an annual basis like the flu? Okay. I can talk about what would happen if it did. I don't know what the odds are that it would happen, but if it did, we are working to develop a vaccine. It's particularly difficult to develop vaccines for RNA viruses, of which coronaviruses are. But mm. I believe that we will be able to develop a vaccine so it would go into Depending on how it looks, either like an annual vaccine that you get automatically or Ebola has a virus. Uh, sorry, Ebola has a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And when there's an Ebola outbreak, they do what's called ring fencing, mm -hmm. which is they find the center of the outbreak and then they vaccinate everybody who might be in contact with someone spreading it. Mm -hmm. And that helps slow the outbreak. But they don't do routine Ebola vaccinations for everybody all the time. It's an outbreak response. Mm -hmm. So it could go either way if there was a vaccine for COVID-19. And so that would be something similar to the annual flu vaccine. Yeah. What is your perspective on uh, the drug development process? The clinical trial process is appropriate and correct, and it keeps us safe from bad drugs. What slows things down is partially the clinical trials, but partially the process of reviewing and approving the red tape around the clinical trials. We could speed that up if like, we had more money going into the government agencies that deal with that. Mm -hmm. Like if the government aspect of that had more employees and had more funding, it would be able to respond immediately to requests from drug companies that would be able to process the paper faster. So like the roadblock that we could remove without hurting safety is the roadblock of how long it takes because overworked bureaucrats are scrambling frantically to get through this. Got it. If we had more efficient, happy bureaucrats, then this paperwork would move faster. But the actual testing for safety and efficiency is not something we should skimp on. A paperwork problem and limitation. Yeah. What do you think is the silver lining of technology during this time? How is technology not only um, helping with the spread of correct information but uh, to the public, but also how is technology helping the world just cope with uh, the economic impact of this? I've seen there's a team working on 3D printing an open source uh, ventilator mm -hmm. that hospitals will be able to purchase at low cost. 
And I guess part of that is made available by the ability to collaborate across places and virtually not have to get together to do it. Mm -hmm. So that's something pretty amazing that technology has brought us. And then there are faster diagnostic tests coming out for COVID-19. Right. Again, because of new tech. And then talking about the social media communications aspect, I think it sort of revealed the weakness that we already knew was there. Like so much about COVID-19 is just showing us the problems we already knew we had in high relief. We knew we had a misinformation problem on social media. Right. And we knew that the companies that govern social media were not doing a particularly good job of dealing with that. Mm -hmm. And this just brings it into high relief. It didn't cause the problem. It just shows it to us. Mm -hmm. It's sort of the next step uh, in increasing criticism and awareness of the role that these different social media companies play in our lives and how uh, strong of an influence they have for better or for worse. Yes, very much so. And the responsibility I think they have in terms of protecting people from harm done by their products. So can you talk a little bit about the positive aspects of technology, the 3D printer that you mentioned? So yeah, 3D printing in general has a lot of potential for letting us create life-saving devices quickly. And open sourcing means that we reduce a lot of the cost around R&D. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's not sustainable for everything because it's basically dependent on people donating their time and excess cognitive capacity to this. Mm-hmm. But at a time when we're desperately short on ventilators, that's really exciting. And I'm also, I think that people who connect each, to each other over different forms of social media through the web are able to encourage each other through the process of staying indoors and being sheltered in place. I think that people will shelter in place better when they don't feel desperately lonely. Yeah, that's something that I've experienced with my family and my friends is this kind of unity in social distancing uh, through technology feeling that you're not alone. And when you see other people, especially I think celebrities abiding by it, or at least saying they are, then that sets a good example for the public, especially many of the users who are younger and might be in the same age group as those Miami partiers. It's good for them to see positive examples of people taking this very seriously. So what do you think lies in the future? So you talk about how coronavirus signifies the future of more and more outbreaks. What is the optimistic view of where we could be? And what is the most pessimistic view? The optimistic view is that COVID-19 makes the concrete real in a way that generates actual action. And that countries with the money to support this stuff recognize that It's not just a moral imperative, but in their own self-interest to help every country be ready and that we start getting stuff in place all around the world so that healthcare is available to everyone and that we catch the new outbreaks when they come Mm -hmm. and that we see an outbreak here or there, but it stops in one country or it stops in two countries because they had the tools to do the right thing Mm -hmm. and that this serves as a shock that strengthens our system for the future. The darkest view is that the weakening of the global economy that happens, not because of the economic impact of sheltering in place, but the economic impact of all of the healthcare that people are going to need and may or may not be able to afford, and all the people that are going to die, is devastating to the global economy. And the decision is made that nobody can afford to do health system strengthening and nobody can afford to do any kind of epidemic preparedness. And everyone's so busy rebuilding, they forget to think about making sure it doesn't happen again. 
Hmm. And that next time we get a major viral outbreak, it's worse. So when we're already knocked down. Yeah. I guess following that, you know, what are some words of optimism that you have for people? I think it's been clear to a lot of people for a long time that our global systems are not working right. That capitalism has been too brutal to the people on the bottom. Mm-hmm. That we seem incapable of collaborating on climate change, even though everyone knows it's coming. Right. And we needed to make some sort of giant change. We needed to see a major planetary change mm-hmm. because it wasn't working the way it used to. And COVID-19 brings all these things rapidly into high relief. The problems that were already there, the fact that they are genuinely problems and that we can't keep ignoring them and the need for some sort of change. And then so it could conceivably illustrate to a whole lot of people concretely something that used to be abstract and generate a wave of citizen and government action that actually does build something stronger for the future. It's almost calling for a change in global mentality towards one of prevention rather than dealing with the symptoms. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. It parallels our current healthcare system um, and the way that we at least treat health in the United States uh, very much treating the symptom essentially rather than preventative education, the grassroots endeavors that might precede disease in the first place. So that's largely a function of how our health system is funded. People change insurance companies often enough that there's no particular value for an insurance company to investing into preventative care for you because Mm. by the time the disease doesn't happen, you're going to be with a different company and they don't reap the benefit. It's a problem that is deeply ingrained. But you mentioned citizen action. What would that look like in an ideal scenario with regards to global health? I mean, as always, like to some degree, it looks like voting. And it looks like voting for politicians and parties that support this kind of approach, that support thinking about people all over the world and taking their welfare seriously too. Mm -hmm. And it looks like supporting NGOs and organizations that are doing work in those parts of the world already, because we can move change sooner through independent organizations and longer term and more sustainable through governments. So you need both. Mm It looks like taking the health of your literal physical neighbors seriously. It looks like getting to know your neighbors and the people in your town and your city and caring about them and thinking about them and thinking of yourself as part of a community, not an individual who happens to live there. Right. Global cooperation and empathy is what is required. Community level all the way to the global level. Yes. I hope that that's a positive outcome of this, that people become more aware of the empathy that they should have towards others in their community and at a global level. And then that motivates them to make even the smallest choices that can influence massive change when it comes together. Um, and, and hopefully we see that from our leaders and our celebrities too, that they start voicing this similar perspective, that we become more conscientious of global health throughout society at all levels. There's a lot of power in thinking of yourself as a member of a group and not as a lone person standing alone. And I'd love to see us thinking about and using that power. And maybe this is the opportunity to do so. Could be. What advice do you have for the average listener to this podcast? It's easy to think of exposure as a binary, like, oh, I've already been exposed. I'm not going to worry about it. But the fact is, actually, your daytime routine is a series of exposures. 
And what you want to do is reduce those exposures as much as you can. So sure, maybe you have to go grocery shopping, but if you have to go grocery shopping, keep your social distance from other people, get home as fast as you can, wash your hands as soon as you leave the grocery store, use your hand sanitizer when you don't have a sink. So think about it as a set of things and you're trying to make it the smallest possible set. Like the temptation as humans is to think of it as on or off, but that's not how this works. It's a scale and you want to push yourself to the low end of the scale. Mm-hmm. Everyone doing their part to minimize exposure, even if they yes. think they already have it. And exposures is sort of the way to think about it. Like not just one, but like the many and how many, how many of those can you dodge? Do you think that COVID-19 might change the way that we live permanently? I think that's very likely. I think that we're going to be a lot more deliberate about when we gather together with other people and we're going to think about it. Like no one's going to go to a concert that only seems mildly interesting. They're only going to go to a concert they're really excited about. Right. I think a lot of mass gatherings are going to lose appeal for people. And I think the ones that we do go to are going to mean a lot more to us. So like less common, but more engaged group events. Like when it happens, you're there because you really, really care. So it'll be a much higher energy level. And I think that all of this enforced social distancing is making us realize how much we really treasure other people's company. And I'm hoping that like we carry that sense of treasuring it forward and like really value the people in our lives. The beautiful silver lining around this entire situation is that it brought me into contact with some friends I hadn't spoken with in years just to check on them. How are they doing? My friends from Indiana, you know, how are they coping with this? And it's comforting. It's sad, but it's comforting that we're all in this together. We're all sharing the same burdens together. It's a strange and confusing time where you support the people you love by staying far away from them. You would have never thought of that. It's somewhat paradoxical, but I think that's one of the amazing things about technology is it can still allow you to do that. Yes, very much so. Thank you very much for your time. I did have one final question. I just wanted to know a little bit more about what drove you to become a global health expert. I don't know. People ask me that a lot. I don't know if I have the best answer or the worst answer. I have wanted to do this for so long that I can't remember when I started. Like I've wanted to do this since I was a kid. I always knew that I wanted, I always knew I wanted to work globally and I always want, knew that I wanted to help vulnerable people. And it became pretty clear that like early on that health was the way I wanted to do it. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Imagine Human. Alana has shared a vision for a future that depends on today's solutions, addressing economic disparity, broken healthcare systems, and climate change. When considering these issues, I encourage our listeners to become educated and make informed decisions. It's imperative we look beyond ourselves and consider others at personal, societal, and global levels. If anything, this crisis shows us that we are all in this together. Each of us has a part to play in curbing this health crisis and rebuilding not only as a city or a nation, but as a species and as a planet. We at Imagine Human will continue to cover this evolving situation and its associated factors over the coming months. 
If you enjoyed this content, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and share this episode with your friends. Practically, I encourage our listeners to please keep washing your hands, continue practicing social distancing, and offer whatever support you can to those in need. Even a phone call to a friend or family member can do wonders. For those in need of resources, including mental health and financial support, there are several links included on this episode's blog post at www.imaginehuman.com. Thank you very much and have a great day.